if it's not you and it's not you now or in the past, it could be you in the future and it's probably someone in your immediate family or certainly someone in your immediate friend group. Welcome to Teach Me Something New. I'm your host, Britt Morin, and this is a production of iHeartRadio and Brit & Co. All my life, everyone's told me I should focus on being good at one thing. But the truth is, I'm curious about a lot of things. But how do you learn about everything? The answer? Make the world's best experts teach you in less than an hour. So come along with me as we all learn something new. In today's episode, we're chatting with Dr. Rebecca Brockman, one of the world's leading neuroscientists who is pioneering the creation of preventative treatments for depression. My husband Dave also happens to be her co-founder of a foundation called Sunrise, which aims to one day cure the disease. We recorded this a couple months ago before the coronavirus pandemic, and hearing what she has to say about depression, stress, and the cutting-edge treatments she's working on hits home now more than ever. Hey guys, welcome back to Teach Me Something New. Today, I'm joined by the one and only Dave Morin. He happens to be my husband. Hey, is Dave. That, is that what we're calling me? We do share the same last name. Yeah, that's a good point. Life partner. It's a hard one. Unclear. Um, you, spouse, husband's cool. A spouse is yeah, super old school. Weird. Okay. Um, and today, we're actually talking about a topic that's pretty close to both of our hearts. Mental health. Indeed. And depression. Yes. And before we introduce our guest, I actually want to chat a little bit about our experiences learning about mental health. And for me, it's been fascinating watching you work on Sunrise. How did you get so interested in all of this and where did Sunrise come from and what is it? So after I sold my last company, um, I was taking some time to think through what I wanted to do next. And um, I was actually pretty depressed and a couple of my mentors were just asking me what I was interested in working on and I was thinking through what are the biggest problems that I think are unsolved and that I could possibly take on now. And the one that kept coming up for me was depression and the reason why was that my father's actually suffered from treatment resistant depression for his entire known life. Um, at the time I was 35. And I just kept thinking about this question, which is why has society so failed at solving this problem that I've had to watch my father suffer for 35 years? And um, I just couldn't understand uh, why that was. And so Sunrise was born out of a desire. Uh, and in, as we say in the science world, an uh, N of one, an experiment of one, um, just why is my dad feeling like this and why has nothing helped? And so I was able to then go and meet with a lot of the top scientists and um, people working in this field. Uh, and uh, I like to say on the both Eastern and Western side of things. And so, um, yeah, that's where Sunrise came out of. And uh, it's uh, it's been an interesting journey. And one of the best people I met along the way is in the room with us. We are so excited to have Dr. Rebecca Brockman, neuroscientist and Dave's co-founder at Sunrise, joining us today. She is currently developing drugs that could be the first to actually work on preventing psychiatric disorders like PTSD and depression. She's actually pioneering a whole new field in this regard, and she's here to teach us something new about depression. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you, Britt. Pleasure <laughs> to be here. Good. 
Good yes. to have you. Yeah, we're so excited. So, okay, it might be helpful for us to actually start off by chatting about the current state of depression. So, Rebecca, how, Dr. Brockman, how would you define what depression even is? When we talk about depression, I think the first thing to acknowledge is that we have a paucity of language, not just around depression, but in general and mental illness and also around stress. So when you say depression, you might mean an emotion, you might mean a symptom of some other disease or condition, and you might need the psychiatric disorder itself. So when I talk about depression, I am talking about the clinical version but I think very, very often people are in, in when we talk to each other about depression, we are talking about one of these other categories or we don't even we don't know which which version we're using. It's a very American thing to reduce things to a single word. <laughs> we actually turn out to be, you know, it's marketing, very, right? Well, we've, we turn out to be very unevolved in this context in, in the East. In many Eastern cultures have, you know. 20 different words for what we call depression or stress or even happiness or love, you know, these words have many, many, many different words. And so I think this is actually a, one of the bigger problems as it relates to this. Um, yeah. And one of the things I've taken away from sitting on the sidelines learning about this from you two is that we might actually, in fact, have like a thousand forms of depression. Like there are many forms of cancer and and they're all possibly treated differently and they hit us differently. And, you know, can you talk a little bit about that when you think of depression? Are you thinking about various forms of it? Yeah. So in that case, right, if we go to the version of depression as a symptom, right, uh, it or even in the clinical sense, that we diagnose depression at the moment using a set of criteria that are, are no ways based in biology. We don't understand the actual mechanism underlying the disease. So, so there's no blood test. There's no urine sample. You're literally talking to somebody in there and like hearing what you're saying and telling you if you have depression. Right, right. We ha And we have uh, inventories with criteria of, of, of things you have to meet criteria for. The way I think about this is metaphorically similar to, say, a runny nose, right? At the moment in in psychiatry, in general, we're diagnosing based on symptoms equivalent to trying to diagnose what's wrong with you when you're sick and you have a running nose. And so at the moment, we have these very eloquent descriptions of runny noses, and we don't really yet know what the underlying cause is. As we figure out the underlying causes, even today for depression, we move that we move that out of out of the category. So let's say you have a thyroid disorder. It's very, very common, right, that you have a thyroid disorder and that's what's actually causing your depressive symptoms. Well, once we know that, you have a thyroid disorder, not you have depression. If we are giving you drugs to treat cancer that are um, inducing depressive symptoms, we don't call that depression. We say that's, you know, cytokine-induced depression because that's how we're treating you. And so I, I think there there's a couple ways to look at this, but at the moment, it, it might just be that depression is actually just a symptom of 10 other clearly identifiable biological diseases, a thousand other, a bunch of other things, right? We're really in the realm of um, sort of the five elements and the humors and trying to create systems of categorization for phenomena that we don't understand yet uh, from a scientific perspective. And I think that's probably one of the biggest takeaways I've had is that 
we actually don't understand much. Can you guys ground me in some of the most interesting stats around depression? Who has depression? How many people? So I, I think it's at what, 300, it's over 300 to 350 million people worldwide. Which is interesting because I, I think that's probably under, under indexed. I think that's like the World Health Organization. And to your point earlier, depending on how you define it, there's also the fact that uh, one in four women, one in six men, now, if you actually use those stats, then we're talking about billions, right? And when you start to look over a lifetime, which perhaps I think is one of the most interesting statistics, I agree. even a stat, is it, it just ends up looking like most people will at some point in their life meet criteria for a psychiatric disorder. Yeah, a really solid study uh, came out with very large What was set. the actual statistic? It's over 85%. In, in which case, this is... It's everyone. It's so common that, you know, sure, we, I think we still categorize it as disease, but you're, you're, you're getting into really interesting territory when this is a phenomenon that most people experience, and yet it, you have no idea how common it is from the way we talk about it. Mm -hmm. And so this is where it's, it's perhaps not a stat, but I think the take-home from those statistics is that if it's not you, and it's not you now or in the past, it could be in the future, and it's probably someone in your immediate family or certainly someone in your immediate friend group. So I think the take-home to ground us is that everyone is touched by this, whether they know it or not, because not only is it stigmatized, it's a disorder such that it's particularly challenging to speak up for yourself, to advocate for yourself. So probably look around the room and, and you know, there it is. The social component of this, I think, is just huge. That even if it's not affecting you, if it's affecting a person that you love, then it is affecting you, right? And so the number of people that are supporting someone who it is affecting is 100%. There's no one that I've talked to about this that doesn't tell me a story of someone. Mm -hmm. And so to me, Rebecca's right on. It's just really bizarre how we don't want it. Maybe it's because it's universal that we don't talk about. I don't know. It's mm -hmm. just like, it's this really fascinating thing. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. 
Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. What are some of the biggest myths around depression? Because I've heard things like, it's passed down in my family, so I'm clearly going to get it. Like it's like a disease, like you in- inherit. Or um, I can get over it um, if I just like have willpower. Or um, maybe it's that, you know, certain types of people are more prone to getting depression. Or maybe that it's it's just being sad. In fact, it could be many other things. So how do you guys feel about those types of mess, and, and are there more? We're talking about the, the clinical version here, yes. right? Uh-huh. Um, well, um, there are definitely more. I want to start with the one where it's just being sad, and because um, that also ties into it, this narrative of it's not, and, you know, depression is being sad, and it's not only that, but sadness and grief are an extremely important part of the human experience. So we do not want to intervene, particularly medically, because these things are important. Sadness is important. And um, depression is much more a disease of, of motivation and activation. It doesn't, you don't have to be sad at all to meet criteria. It's, it's, sadness is an emotion. And when you look at the clinical expression of depression, especially um, very extreme cases, it looks like, basically it looks much more like Parkinson's. You see it in what's known as blunted affect, which is um, a lack, uh, a decrease of expressiveness in facial expression. It's a slowness in the ability to initiate movements, right? It really, really looks much more like to me, like Parkinson's than um, than sadness. Mm-hmm. The other one myth you mentioned, which is the one that really just drives me crazy is the it, it it's it's in my family quote unquote you know it was passed down to me and to be accurate with words and how to think about this we have no idea there are some genes that have been found that relate to certain of these categories but like we talked about earlier on the categories themselves are bad right they're subjective categories that aren't based in biology and so you've got clusters of symptoms that we then go and look at uh, genetic data and try to like find genetic data that maps to these symptoms, right? Which is actually kind of a foolish way to go about it in the first place. We live in an interesting time where we've gone from these having disorders that we were telling people they were that they were completely responsible for, right? That before the medicalization of mental illness, right? It was failure of will, character, flaws, that sort of thing, and you were responsible for it. And then we've medicalized it, which at least frees patients from the burden of this being their fault, but in a way where we've told them this is a disease and it's a disease of um, motivation and agency and, you know, there's not, we don't know anything and there's nothing you can do, which just puts you on the other extreme of sort of feeling helpless, right? So in, in one case, right, you're burdened with... Um, it's all it, your fault. It's all your fault. And the other case is it's not your fault, but you have no control. Yeah, it's kind of like when you call your doctor and you're like, I have a cold. And they're like, <laughs> good luck. <laughs> and and so maybe, again, and this is not speaking to this the bucket of severe cases or inherited, but maybe what 
we should do is we should reframe these this condition a little bit more like how we look at diabetes, right? There's There are many ways you can get diabetes. You can have type 1 diabetes, and that can, is autoimmune, right? And that can be inherited, right? So then it could be a genetic component. Uh, there's another version that's spontaneous. You can also get type 2 diabetes, right? When that is from environmental influences, it's it's diet, it's consumption. There are other things that also predispose you to be at risk. When you start framing this, right, from more of a diabetes model, right, then what, regardless of where the disorder came from, right, whether it's purely biological, it's inherited, it's come from environment, there are different ways to treat it, right? We have we have drug treatments for diabetes, we have lifestyle treatments. And so if you exercise and you eat healthy and you cut sugars out of your diet, you moderate the impact of the disease, right? Because a lot of um, the what makes diabetes so uh, ultimately deadly are the secondary consequences of not controlling your blood sugar, right? And so in if in some subset of these cases, depression is uh, a failure of the system of, that metabolizes stress, right, your resilient system, that there are many things you can do to enhance your resilience, uh, exercise, sleep, social support, Yoga. diet, um, therapy, etc. Um, and also meditation and, and also pharmacological interventions like drugs are also going to moderate that. And so it puts you in a category where you at least have a framework for the disease where it's again, it's not your fault, but you have some agent, you know, maybe it's more of a shifting of the locus of experience where you are more prone um Again, I particularly study the impact of stress. So I think a lot about stress-induced episodes of depression and stress-induced depression and post-traumatic stress disorder, right? And so it, in those cases, there are – you're sort of sh – you maybe you have a shifted risk of when you are exposed to stress, you're going to – have one of these symptomatic episodes. It's again like diabetes, right? You mm -hmm. you can sort of have some influence and control within that shifted range. To switch gears slightly, <laughs> you're you're thinking about the prevention of depression and PTSD, I presume, rather than the curing of depression. Why? Well, uh, like all great paradigm shifts in science uh, because of an accidental discovery that <laughs> told us we should change the way we're thinking. And this goes back to um, the 1950s, right? Again, this accidental discovery of antidepressants, right? We were not looking for drugs to intervene to treat mental illness. Once we discovered them, we understood from those accidental discoveries that we could have drugs that treat mental illness. How did we discover them? Uh, so after World War II, there was a lot of, uh, we went, in, we went into Germany and there was a lot of, uh, leftover hydrazine, which is rocket fuel. And we were like, all right, well, we probably shouldn't leave this here. So we shipped it back to the States and uh, we sold it pretty cheaply to chemical companies and pharmaceutical companies and said, see what you can do with all this hydrazine, which is a pretty simple molecule. And uh, But it's rocket fuel. But it's rocket fuel. And uh, so we played around with it and we came up with some pesticides and antifungals, uh, spandex, and also a whole bunch of drugs that we decided to test on tuberculosis because at the moment... 
uh, at that time, tuberculosis was was killing, you know, a, a significant percentage of the population. And so any new, most new drugs were actually just tested to see if they worked. So we uh, had this, these drugs, uh, Ipronizid, which was this hydrazine-based drug, and we took it into our tuberculosis wards or our sanitariums, and we gave them to patients. And the patients felt so much better, right? They, they, in fact, in some cases were elated. They were dancing in the halls. There's one. I also love the way that scientific papers are written in the 1950s versus now. So they have these incredible, like, narrative accounts of things. They're really interesting. So in one paper, they're talking about how one patient, in fact, got on the loudspeaker system to proclaim how amazing this drug was to the other patients. Mm. Um, so anyway, this was all happening, but the drug actually wasn't treating depression. Tuberculosis. Patients were still dying. And mm. so they reported this initially as uh, a side effect. Um, it was a negative side effect that they called euphoria. Um, I'm, and from that, they discovered that actually these drugs could elevate mood. And then they started using them to, to treat depression. A negative side effect called euphoria. Yeah. I love that. So you can thank uh, Rocket Fuel for antidepressants and yoga pants. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Dear Colgate, I love that you love that I love being at home. You even let me whiten my teeth from home. Because you know how I feel about getting up from my cloud couch. The Colgate Optic White LED Kit gives professional-level results in just 10 minutes a day for 10 days when used as directed. And that's why, Colgate, I want you to meet my parents. Because ever since meeting you, I've been living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. So back to what you're doing, Rebecca. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so once we had discovered this, um, people were able to think about treatments that could elevate the mood or perhaps uh, cure these diseases. And at the moment, we have no cures, right, in psychiatry. And this goes back to what I was saying about how we've historically treated mental illnesses is different from the rest of disease in medicine, even when we're studying, we're doing the neuroscientific approach to psychiatric disorders. So what we've had historically, we've had symptom suppressing drugs, we've had palliatives, we have no cures, and we are looking for cures. I can give talks on this, and people still think I'm talking about well, when you have depression, we're preventing episodes. And, and mm. it's, it's like, no, we're talking about preventing the disorders entirely. So where are we at then? Like, where is your research and your science? The two contributions here are two accidental discoveries. One is that drugs given prior to stress, say a single dose of a drug that's out of the body 
within, you know, a few hours given a week before a chronic stress can actually enhance stress resilience and protect against these the effects of stress. So if you are a soldier that knows he or she is going off to war, or like, I don't know, I'm trying first to think responder. of the other, a first responder, you yeah, take this drug a week before and you are, your resilience is enhanced. Potentially. Potentially. I think this is actually really important because when we talk to people about this, they'll say, oh, sweet, like I'm not going to feel stress anymore. And it's like, no, that's not exactly it. This is not resistance. It's not not experiencing stress. It's not not responding to stress. It is all about having a stress response that matches the external stressor you are experiencing. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And if you have an insufficiently strong response. So there are some disorders where people are missing the stress hormones, um, cortisol, and if they are experience something extremely stressful, say they're in a car accident, if you don't immediately inject them with cortisol, with a stress hormone, they can die from that, from not having a strong enough physiological response to essentially metabolize or manage and maintain homeostasis mm. in the response to that to that stress. And then on the other hand, if you are, if your body is having a very strong stress response at all times without stressors you're metabolizing, you probably end up looking in, I think we think that in, at least in animals that PTSD and depression, they, they look a lot like disorders of homeostasis. It's not simply too much stress hormone, not enough stress hormone. It's this lack of responsiveness. It's you have too much stress hormone at baseline when you shouldn't. It's that it takes too long for the stress response to recover after a stressor. It's that you have an exaggerated stress response. You have a blunted stress response. So I, I think that likely, uh, so the other accidental discovery is that if you take um, peripheral immune cells, just white blood cells from mice that have been stressed and you put them into mice that haven't been stressed, those are also protective. We as a field have known for years that there is some contribution of the immune system to depression and PTSD. And if, right, if nothing else, having these disorders dramatically increases your risk of immu secondary immune diseases, heart disease, et cetera, and so forth. And you've got these immune markers that sort of shift. But it, it's been really unclear what the the causal role is. So uh, we have this thing we like to do in, in basic science where you just take the thing you're trying to understand and you either turn it off or turn it on and try and understand what changes basically from just flipping that switch. And so I was trying to understand if, if these immune cells are contributing, right, if they are really contributing to depression, we should be able to take immune cells from mice in a model of depression, put them into other mice, and see something that looks like depressive behavior. And um, what we saw was the exact opposite, which was just taking only these white blood cells and putting them into mice that had not been stressed they are protective. They enhance resilience. In this case, the immune system is actually responding to stress, storing a memory of stress, quote unquote, and having a protective response against future stressors. So Rebecca, what is the state of your research right now and where is it going next? Yeah. So there. So again, there are those two pieces. Um, one points us to perhaps a real mechanism and a real point of understanding with uh, the immune cells. 
But uh, we also have this windfall discovery of drugs that might work now in humans, though we have no idea how they work. And one of them is actually an FDA-approved drug that is generic now. So theoretically, we could be able to test it in humans and perhaps have it available within, say, three to five years. So the work is being done. There might be a drug within the next few years. That no, decade. <laughs> next decade. We'll yeah, see. If we're Until lucky. then, we need to fix the stigma. We need to probably talk about type like these type 1, type 2 depression buckets. I'm trying to think about it more holistically because what I've learned from all of this is that there are many forms. They come from different places. It's going to impact all of us at some point in our life. There are some things to help us maintain and sustain, like lower the symptoms of depression in whichever form you have. And in the next decade, there might be a way to prevent it in the future. Is there anything else that you're looking forward to about this topic in the future? One of the interesting things about when you start having preventative interventions for diseases is you can start thinking about eradication, which feels like a very radical thought around any of these disorders. And it seems also to have some very interesting implications culturally. And I am really, really curious to see what will happen in terms of just seismic shifts in stigma, in narrative, in, in, in just the way we think about this once we actually start having cures or preventions or understanding at a biological level. Mm -hmm. I love that. The next conversation is going to happen about emotional abuse. Yeah. And I would advise anyone who has any curiosity about this to sort of look at the lists of controlling and manipulative behaviors, because I think a lot of people are, speaking of mental health, right, are in emotionally abusive relationships and do not know it, do not have any idea that that's to recognize the sort of techniques. And I think the last thing I'd throw out because this was the this one's come up in the past two weeks is this concept of silencing the self. So this is a phenomenon that's described in psychology, where people will essentially suppress aspects of their own needs and wants and self, particularly in relationships that is highly tied to depression, particularly yeah. depression in women. And, yeah, I, I like and, to say that depression is a repressed expression. Mm -hmm. I'm very fascinated with the social components. And the last one you touched on, I think, is one of the deepest, hardest. You could talk about it in different ways. I, I think of it as identity as well. You know, like, who am I? Who do I want to express myself as? Like, what is what is it coming out of me? Like, wh who do I want to be in the future? And depending on your relationships and, you know, whether it's the group of people that you hang out with, whether, you know, the, the work people or the church people or your town, they have norms. And so you try to conform to those. If you are, you know, and you see this in minority communities a lot, if you try to repress a piece of yourself, then it really comes out and causes depression in, in really enormous ways. And I think that this is a, an area that is really interesting. And so this is a, I think, component of the problem, which we don't want to talk about because it means you have responsibility to your friends and your family in the problem too. Um, and so I, I think that's a space to be watching because um, I think it's it's playing out uh, in a lot of different ways, particularly because of social media. Well, you guys, this has been fascinating. And there's so much to learn here and uh, we're barely like at the cusp of everything. 
that is going on in this field. So thank you so much, Dr. Rebecca Brockman, for being here today. Thank you to Mr. Dave Morin. And if you guys at home want to learn more, Rebecca, where can they find you? You can go to PubMed and search for my research article. The answer to that question is go to TED.com and search for Rebecca Brockman. And she has two wonderful TED Talks on this topic. And, uh, you know, they're, they're both extraordinary on different angles of everything we talked about today. Great. All right. Well, I hope you guys learned something new today and we will see you next time. A big thank you to Dr. Rebecca Brockman for sitting down with us and for everything she's doing to change the face of mental illness. She's working hard so that in three to five years, we may have a drug that could actually prevent depression and enhance stress resilience. The possibilities of how this could help are truly endless. Now more than ever, we need to acknowledge mental illness and support mental health. Please always remember, if you're feeling suicidal, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. They're available to help 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and you can also visit them online at suicidepreventionlifeline.org. Thanks for listening to Teach Me Something New, a production of iHeartRadio and Brit & Co. I'm your host, Britt Morin. Send us your feedback and find more information about each episode at Brit.co slash listen. You can also find me on social media at Brit and at Brit Co. A special shout out to my two co-hosts, Ange, who you can find on Instagram at Angelica Temple. And of course, my husband and partner in everything, Dave Morin. Teach Me Something New is executive produced by Christine Swar and Ali Perry with additional production and sound design by Aaron Kaufman. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. See you next time.